So one thing that's often talked about in this field is that it's not tangible, but you have to have that drive and the, the willingness to just keep going and, and believe in the process, believe in that what you are doing, you will see the results on the field. And again, you, you see it in these athletes, you see it in what they've achieved. Cristiano Ronaldo has won the most Ballon d'Or ever. Kobe Bryant, McCamley Reigns has won all his achievements. So I think that has to be a testament to the training of the mind more than anything else, really. What is going on, everybody? Thanks for tuning in to Cubicle Athlete. This is Derek, and my guest today is Natasha Baines. She is a performance psychologist and the founder of an awesome website called beyondbetterclub.com. Beyond Better is a performance psychology service, information hub, and educational platform. They offer consulting on psychological skills, education, news, articles, and blogs centered around performance and the performance lifestyle. Natasha has worked with many high performers and pro athletes, and she has a couple of master's degrees, so it's pretty apparent who is the more educated person in this conversation. I really enjoyed picking her brain on some of these topics, and with that said, let's start the show. Natasha, to start this off, I'd really love to hear about your origins. Doing some research for this, I know you have a pretty extensive background in in your education and sports psychology and performance psychology, also in your career, having worked with a lot of professional athletes. I'd love to hear how you navigated all that and how you got to where you are today. Absolutely. First of all, thank you for having me on. Very excited to be here and talk about this topic, something that I'm very passionate about. Yeah, so to begin, I do have an extensive background in psychology, in education, not on purpose, uh, I add, but basically I did my undergraduate degree in psychology and I always thought that I would go into clinical psychology. So in hospitals, learning about depression and anxiety and treating clinical disorders. I then went on to do a master's degree in general psychology, just because I didn't really know what area of clinical that I wanted to specialize in. Uh, so I did that and kind of what you were saying I missed this element of competition and I was just something missing about halfway through that degree I was actually invited to an alumni football match because I, I play football or used to play football uh, sorry soccer for any American <laughs> lis- uh, listeners <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, not to get confused with American football um, I used to play football uh, I got invited to a game for my undergraduate university and I hadn't played in gosh like a year or two and I remember just leaving that game and feeling so exhilarated I came home and I was talking to my father and saying you know how great would it be if I could do a career that was in sport but also in psychology and he kind of looked at me like you know there are sports psychologists right (laughs) and it was this it was this like uh brainwave of that is exactly what I want to do so it was it was actually something that I wasn't really aware of at the beginning which I guess is actually a testament to how little and how new it is in the field of of professional sports and the the field of general professions like business as well, which was something I'm sure we'll touch on later. So I did that. I had to go back to do a second master's degree in sports psychology because my regulating body, they wouldn't let me do the chartership in sport and exercise psychology without having a sports psychology master's degree. So that's where my three degrees come from so it wasn't just me kept going back to university and getting all these degrees it was was quite unfortunate that I had to do another one yeah so I had to do that five years of university that I had to do and that's even before uh, being qualified so I did the master's degree and that's the end of my um, academic career so then after that I started getting into training and work experience and, and placements which is where you see the 
professional sporting background come in there with teams like Coventry City, which is my local hometown, and Birmingham City, which is a neighbouring town, probably 15, 20 minutes from here. So yeah, I started working with these teams mainly for, of course, in any role you, you need experience. So I started working with these teams in different roles. They weren't always in sports psychological roles or performance psychology roles because it's, it's very difficult. For anyone that doesn't know, it is very difficult to get into this industry uh, and become not, not an expert, but you know, to learn and, and to grow, it's difficult to get your foot through the door. So I took any roles that I could. For example, at Coventry, I started out working as actually a sports scientist, presumably because sports science is so, it has a lot more value to sports, or a lot of people would say, or it's, a, it's used a lot more, you know, GPS tracking and stuff like that. that that's utilized a lot more than, than sports psychology or training mental skills is. So I, I was put in a role there. Um, and I kind of wormed my way into, into a sports psychological role and kind of actually developed a psychological role and developed a psychology system within the Coventry City Men's Academy that they didn't have before. So that was quite interesting to initiate that protocol that they didn't have. So again, you know, starting out and going straight into having to build this system, that was something completely new to me. And it was, it was an exciting time and I learned so much from having to essentially build from scratch and be the one coming up with the ideas when at a time when I've only just started learning myself how things work in the professional world. So that was quite interesting. Um, and then moving on to Birmingham, uh, I've worked with the professional women's team. So again, women's football, not, I, it's getting a lot bigger now. But it was never it was never really a thing, especially in England. I'm not sure what it's like um, over in the states, but in England it wasn't hasn't been a thing for a while. Maybe the past three four years, and only just this year and sorry last year they started to televise women's football matches. So that's something that was very interesting. Then going into working with women and in, in, in women's sports, uh, it's so different. It's such a contrast to working with men um, and work uh, yeah and, and working with a lot of more a lot more female coaches and a lot more female staff as well so that's also something that was quite new to me uh very different experiences uh, in for birmingham uh it was very much uh, a sports psychology role i was very much the sports psychologist at that club again very interesting because they both of these as with coventry none of these teams had any sports psychology support already in place so it was kind of like again i was coming in and and i was initiating these systems i was initiating these protocols and kind of introducing a whole new way of training the mind to these players that might not have been exposed to it before especially if if this perhaps this might be their first time in a professional league so especially in lower leagues too and coming up from from the youth teams and from academy teams for example our youth uh, teams start from age five uh, and they carry on until so throughout fives nines thirteens fifteens and you are offered a professional contract uh, at the age of 16 and then past 16 you go into what's called a development phase um, which leads up to under 23 age group and then after that it's it's senior football like what we see on tv so throughout these age groups, if they haven't been exposed to this type of learning before, it's something completely new to them. 
so it was kind of like hand in hand like oh, this is new to me and, it, and it's new to them so it was kind of like we're, we're both all of us are entering this t- this unknown territory so that was yeah. very interesting um, yeah i have a question about that absolutely did it take some convincing to do on your part or was it very accepted on their end because it was very new so were, was it off-putting to the teams for instance for uh coventry city men's academy if they, there was no sports psychologist there before you, mm-hmm. did they like the idea or did you have to convince them of that? That is a great question. So, and a question that I get often as well. So with the men's team, I wouldn't say it was accepted, but it was, I would say it was tolerated, if you know what I mean. So I was, because, because I was working with an academy team, I was working with 15, 16, 17, 18 year old boys, essentially, who all they want to do is play football. They, right. they want to play football. They want to get big in the gym. Um, they want to, you know, go out, spend the money that they've got. They want to tell their friends that, that they're, they have a professional contract and things like that. Not to diminish their, what they're trying to do, but their uh, attention and their goals weren't often on trying to enhance the mind and trying to be the best that they can be. So it did take a lot of convincing to kind of say like, you know, hey guys, you, you can really benefit from this. This will help you or, you know, perhaps your game right now is a seven out of 10. I guarantee you, if you learn more about this or educate yourself on this topic, you can take that even one notch up, two notches up. So it, it did take a lot of convincing, but then admittedly there were other, a, a select hand few, maybe handful even, uh, maybe two or three players that I could tell who were interested in this area of the game. Whether they went out and educated themselves on it or not, I could tell that they were more willing to come to me and, and ask questions. So whether they did it themselves outside of the football grounds, they would at least come to me and, and ask questions about me and, and how they can do this and how they can do that. So it was nice to see that there were at least a few of those people. So the coach at Coventry City, his name was Ryan. He actually gave me a, a really good opportunity. He's one that got me into the club when I spoke to him about the different kinds of characters that we've got in the room, the people that I had noticed that were interested in sports psychology or that I felt had a lot of potential were also the people that he said, that kid's going to make it, that kid's going to get a professional contract. Yeah. So it was interesting that the people that I felt uh, had potential or were interested in this side of the game, uh, the coaches kind of confirmed that to me as well and they picked up on it too of course because they're around them 24 7 and they would say yeah you know what that, that kid that you spoke to about about his injury and how he can make the most of it that like, he's going to make it that kid's got potential so it was nice to know that what I was picking up on um, about about the, the people with certain characteristics or certain qualities uh, was also what other coaches were picking up on too so it was nice to, one nice to know that I wasn't completely delusional in what I was seeing in in this potential that these kids have. And in just general interest and and nice to see that there are people that are interested in this side of the game because it absolutely baffles me that sports psychology and and training the mind and mentalities is so undervalued in sport. So that was one thing. And then with Birmingham City women's team, a lot of them were older. So I was probably working with women from ranging from age 21 to 29. So a lot more mature, some of them were mothers, some of them had two jobs, you know, families and stuff like that. So a very different, um, a very different experience in terms of, in terms of having to convince them or, or the buy-in that they had. So I would, I would probably say 
let's say there's 20 people in the squad, I would say half of that, half of those athletes um, I saw on a regular basis. So that's uh, once a month, for example, for a one-to-one session. Um, and then, of course, whilst I'm in and out of the club, I see them all the time as well. And then the other half just weren't interested. They just had absolutely no interest. Uh, what the, It was mandatory to attend workshops, for example, so things that were group work. But outside that, they had no interest in coming to talk to me or learning about a, a psychological skill or, or a technique or even just being curious about a feeling that they might have, for example, uh, pre-competition anxiety or anything like that. There was no curiosity. There was no asking questions about, about simple things like that. So it's, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of hit and miss. Uh, yeah it's you know you never you never really know what you're going to get you never really know who's going to be into it and who's not going to be into it so it's exciting I think, I think what's interesting what's interesting about that is I'm sure if you ask those individuals what percentage of their sport is mental it would be a pretty high percentage absolutely yet they wouldn't you know if you'd say oh yeah you know football is probably 90 percent mental it's like all right how much time are you spending on developing those mental and psychological skills to get better at your game, they'd probably say 5% or 10% or, you know, whatever that number would be yet, you know, they're, they're, they're missing that connected. Yeah, exactly. A very good point as well. And, you know, it's not just the players though, either it runs straight from the guys at the top who enforce policies. So again, I'm not sure what it's like in the States, but here in England, if we have a, if you're an Academy team, you there are three there are three types of academy teams so you can be category one category two or category three if you are a category two or three team that means there is no psychological support required it's things like you have to have a physiotherapist you have to have a strength and conditioning coach things like that but there's no psychology support or mental well-being support that is a requirement if you are a category one team you are required to have that support for example, the team is required to hire a qualified psychologist. Uh, you are required to have a well-being protocol. So if someone experiences um, any episodes of any clinic, anything clinical, anxiety, depression, um, or would just like to talk to someone, the club is required to take that further. So it is interesting that the athletes have this mentality that they say it's 90% in the mind and 10% on the pitch. Uh, but yeah, but they don't do anything about it. But, you know, we can't just put it on the athletes. We have to be looking at the people that are enforcing these policies and uh, stating the, the mandatory requirements for a professional sports team. So it goes straight from the top. And what happens at the top? It filters down to the athletes. And um, so if, if we're going to start anywhere with that, it's it's definitely got to be with policy making for sure. Yeah. And you, you just said something that I find interesting. There seems to be a clinical aspect to this as well. Performance or sports psychology seems to have two arenas. It's on the field and off the field, right? You could have on the field anxieties and off the field issues and traumas or what have you. Is there a lot of parallels to clinical psychology and performance psychology? Because up until this point, to me, I've always been interested in, you know, the self-talk and visualization. And But it seems like if you had a childhood trauma or something, that could be affecting your performance on the field. Yeah, for sure. No doubt. Um, There is definitely a parallel. However, in my line of work and with a lot of sports psychologists that I know, because of the way that we are regulated, our body is regulated, there is like a sports psychology section. There's a clinical psychology section. So if we come across an athlete that is 
100% experiencing clinical symptoms or clinical symptoms of anxiety, clinical symptoms of depression or anything like that, we are required to refer them on to a clinical specialist. So I don't deal too much with athletes that have clinical trauma. However, it definitely does come into play. Uh, For example, I worked with a woman who played for the England national team and she experienced a lot of anxiety outside of football outside of the pitch absolutely nothing to do with her sport or her career Uh, she had developed that at a younger age however our conversations and what what we mainly focused on was trying to minimize that anxiety so that she could perform at a higher level so whilst she may have developed the anxiety at an earlier age and from a completely unrelated experience it comes into play when she's on the pitch or it comes into play when she's traveling she will have a lot of negative thoughts and a lot of traumatic thoughts which of course if you're about to go onto the pitch and you you have a game to win or a tournament to win that's obviously going to affect your game right so there's definitely a parallel it's it depends on how much it interferes with your performance and how much it interferes with you on the pitch is uh, how i would determine how i deal with that person right yeah yeah um and something you touched on i know uh before we started recording, it was something that we had discussed, something we really wanted to cover is how sports psychology now today seems to be becoming a very prominent field within the world of professional sports and even in, in business. Uh, but it seems like it wasn't that long ago that it was either unheard of or it was looked down upon maybe as a sign of weakness. Mm-hmm. Why and, and how do you think that has changed? What's going on in your field now today? Yeah, I think that because sports psychology uh, originally, or most types of psychology, they originate from things like Freudian psychology, where we have this view of uh, a a scientist in a long white coat conducting scientific experiments on people. Um, So because the the foundations of psychology derive from, from that, from the clinical aspect, there is a, is a stigma that, if you seek a psychologist or if you seek help from a psychologist, it's a weakness. Whenever we've heard about psychology in the news or psychology in research, it's always been this person is going to therapy because they're depressed. This person's going to therapy because they are schizophrenic or whatever the, the issue might be. It's always, um, it's always a reactive process. So this is actually something that we touch on at beyond better and something that's grounded in our philosophy. So psychology, has been a very reactive process it is very you should go and see a therapist because you experience this whereas when it's come to sports psychology and what's changing now is that people are recognizing the value in which it to me is is crazy but it, people are only just now recognizing the value in in training <laughs> the mind which makes no sense right. because like you said if you ask all of these athletes most of them will say it is 95 percent mental but you know it's only just being valued that it gives you the edge. So before, I guess the edge in sports was going to the gym, making sure that you're the fastest player on the pitch, making sure that your, your catch is the best or your batting average is the best. So it was all very technical and it was very tactical. But if, if all those things, suddenly everyone's going to catch up to each other and be on the same playing field, people start to wonder, well, how else can I get this edge on this competition? How else can I be better than this person? And the only thing left really is to elevate the mind, is to enhance the, the, minds, the mindset and the psychological skills, and everything that's going on before you step onto the pitch. 
on the field and everything that happens after you step onto the pitch and after you step off the field. I think that it's just it's just being recognised. It's been a lot more researched. There, there used to be an, an absence of, of research in this field. But once people start understanding its value, it kind of filters its way through to the research, to the science. And then, you know, we, the big organisations, they listen to the scientists now and then they start to integrate psychological practices into their organisations that just wasn't there before. So as we slowly come away from this idea of scientific experiments and only trying to practice training our mind because something is wrong, we come to the idea that we should practice training our mind just because we want to be better, just because we want to go further, as opposed to having that reactive view, like I said before, we start to transition towards a more proactive stance. So we take a proactive approach. For example, um, athletes like Cristiano Ronaldo, one of, if not the greatest footballer in the world, uh, the late, great Kobe Bryant. When we listen to these people, they talk about training their mind and elevating their mindset. And it's not because they were told they're weak in this area. It's not because they were told you lack confidence or you need to psych yourself up more before a game, you aren't motivated. It's just because they understood that that is how that they get the edge on their competition by taking themselves further in that aspect. Right. Yeah. And I think those elite athletes are the ones that really helped push the narrative of how important it is. I mean, it certainly piqued my interest when I started seeing people like Kobe Bryant talking about his mental state before big games, right? I guess just throughout life in general, it really opened my eyes. Like there's really something to this. And um, the more I, I start to dig into this and to talk to people such as yourself, mm-hmm. I start to see the parallels with sport and, and just life in general, how I could apply these skills to my professional work life or even to things like relationships. And so, yeah, it, it, it seems to be very, I mean, you could maybe speak on this. It seems to be very widely accepted now. I, there doesn't really seem to be any negative outlook on on sports psychology today yeah definitely um i think we're getting there but i think having been uh, a student of it and being in the academics of it and trying to get into myself into the industry i definitely experience some organizations uh, some coaches and some staff that that aren't on board with it for example um i can give you a solid example of that this is something that i write about on the blog which is on beyond better when trying to get experience, it's just a lot of sending emails. Whatever my, my interest is, is primarily football. So my emails would go to football clubs or sporting professionals just saying, you know, hey, um, this is my degree. This is what I'm trying to learn. This is what I'm trying to achieve. I would love to come and do this work with you and your team. And the response, some responses would be, you know, we're not interested or that's, you know, that's not helpful to us, um, stuff like that. Uh, so, you know, it's definitely still there. So it's it's maybe more there than I expected. At the professional level, I was thinking more so of like the, the public view, just yeah. the general population, I guess, guys like me, you know, it's yeah. just like it wasn't necessarily an interest a handful of years ago. But today it's like, oh, man, there, there's a lot to this. And it's maybe so curious to just learn more about it and be able to apply it to my own life. Yeah, for sure. And the more we see it, like you said, um, being pushed by these well-known athletes as well, the public uh, are likely to get to get on board with it too, which is fantastic. Yeah. 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 I, I just uh, finished reading Kobe Bryant's book, Mamba Mentality. And yeah. I mean, just the, just that term Mamba Mentality, it's, it's, it 
carries so much weight today. Yeah. You know, living in Los Angeles, I, I see that name everywhere. I see it in gyms. I see it on t-shirts, on hats. Mm -hmm. For guys like that, and I'd love to hear your perspective on this, it seems to be so innate in them. It seems to be so organic to think that way as if it's just a genetic thing. Like they were just kind of constructed to think that way and to be such elite performers. And I might be naive in thinking this, but it seems like he didn't have to put that much work into his mind or that he did put a lot of work into his mindset. It just came so naturally to him to do that. It was easy for him to put in that work. Mm -hmm. um, where does some athletes, like you were saying, maybe are a little more resistant and not interested and requires more effort for them? Yeah. Like you said, it, it might be an innate thing. I think it's a bit of both. I think that we are, people are definitely born not only with a certain level of talent, but just a certain level of drive and a certain desire to want to be the best. So again, coming back to the same examples, Cristiano Ronaldo, he somewhat parallels Kobe Bryant in that desire to want to be the best in the world. And I think that desire and that drive is what is innate, but what isn't innate and what comes from your environment and comes from your learning is actually going out and doing it. Because it's one thing to have that drive, to have that want to be the best athlete in the world or to be the best that you can be. But it is absolutely another thing to actually put in the work. And that might be something that a lot of people are afraid of or they don't have the patience for it. They don't see the value in putting the time into it. And I think one of the reasons for that is because it's not tangible. We can't see, physically see the results of you you know, sitting down for one hour every day and engaging in mental visualization or engaging in self-talk practices. Yes, it will come over time and, and you will reap the rewards on the court or on the field. But for example, why things like strength and conditioning training, tactical training, technical training are so accepted is because we can see that. We can see that if someone has weak quadriceps, for example, they go to the gym and, and they do some quadricep training for one month, two month, three months. We can see that the strength is growing and the athlete can see that. So they are more motivated to back in there because they can see the results. So one thing that's often talked about in this field is that it's not tangible, but you have to have that drive and the, the willingness to just keep going and, and believe in the process believe in that what you are doing you will see the results on the field and again you, you see it in these athletes you see it in what they've achieved Cristiano Ronaldo has won the most Ballon d'Or ever Kobe Bryant look how many rings he's won or all his achievements so I, I think that has to be a testament to the training of the mind more than anything else really definitely you know as human beings I think generally a lot of us like to focus on things that we're already good at and we seem to avoid things that we're not so good at mm -hmm. and there seems to be a very important need for creativity and imagination when it comes to a lot of these psychological techniques i mean i myself you know even though i i don't play a sport at an elite level i, I play in a hockey men's league with a bunch of guys in their 30s and 40s so obviously <laughs> obviously not highly competitive <laughs> But I like to pretend I'm a professional athlete. And in my mind, before uh, a game like that, I was like, all right, I'm going to visualize how this game's going to go. Uh, I want to score a goal. I want to get an assist. I, I want to contribute to my team's win. And I just sit there. And in my mind, I just I don't know if I'm picturing myself scoring a goal. A lot of the times it's just it, maybe my creativity and imagination's just not developed enough where it's like, all right, what do I do next? What am I thinking of next? What, a, what led to this goal being scored? Or sometimes a negative thought comes in like where, oh, no, you didn't score that goal. 
So it's, mm-hmm. it, it seems to be very difficult. And again, obviously I'm not an elite athlete, but it's difficult for me to go through those exercises and it makes me not want to do them because I'm not good at it. Yeah. Which, um, so yeah, I guess, uh, again, to, to kind of harp on guys who are doing it a lot, maybe why it came so naturally to them or why they put so much time into it to begin with was maybe they were pretty good at it. And it, it's, it's those people who need to put some extra time in some maybe uh, imagination or creativity exercises to kind of work those parts of the brain to be able to do some of these things. Does that make any sense? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but I think um, more so what would be better to work on in that uh, specific scenario is things like patience and uh, resilience. So for example, coming, coming back to your example, uh, if you're engaging in this process of mental imagery before you're about to get on, um, is, it, is it ice hockey, I'm assuming, that you're talking yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we have field hockey and ice hockey here. So I don't know which one you're referring to, but so for example, before you get on the ice, if, if you're engaging in this mental imagery practice, uh, you said that, for example, you might have negative thoughts that creep in or negative visuals like, oh, I didn't score that goal. That's fine. That is absolutely fine because you know what, when you get on the ice, you might not score that goal. But what's important is how you plan to deal with that. So you can use the imagery practice to actually uh, engaging in a planning process of what you're going to do on the back of not scoring that goal. So instead of just thinking, oh, damn, I'm not engaging in this practice correctly or I didn't score that goal or I don't want to do this because I can't do it. We can look at that experience and think, yeah, that's probably actually quite realistic because I'm not going to score every goal. So if that happens... I can actually visualize what I'm going to do as a backup plan. How am I going to get the the puck back? How am I going to get my team back into a better position? So again, having that that mentality, that patience and the outlook of um, having a backup plan and actually trying to take something from each experience, even if it's a, a, a mental imagery experience that didn't go as you planned, there is still something to always take away from that because without even knowing it, you have actually just visualized an experience that is very likely to happen. So why not use that? Why not take that as an example and try to train that and try to work on that? So again, having, having that patience and that willingness to proceed, even when perhaps it's not going your way and the resilience to, to think again, that didn't go quite well, but I'm going to try it again and I'm going to get up and I'm going to do it again and again until I feel that I am in the right focus and I'm in the right frame of mind to engage in this um, imagery practice to a point where it reflects what I actually want to achieve when I'm in the real body experience of being on the ice. So yeah, good focus and patience more so I think than creativity because the creativity and the imagination, um, excuse me if you can hear my dog in the background, Oh no uh, worries. The, the imagination and the creativity actually comes from your environment and your surroundings and your past experience. So no doubt there will have been, um, games that you've played so you can draw on those experiences you can draw on moments that didn't go didn't quite go so well you can draw on moments that did go well um, so the need to be creative is already there really you have your surroundings you have the senses you have the smell you know what it feels like when you when you hold the stick you know all of these things so having the willingness and the fortitude to put that into practice I would say is perhaps more important than trying to be more creative or imaginative with your scenarios. Yeah, that's, I love that. That's great. And, and I was always wondering if while I was doing those, uh, the mental imagery, I'm going through those exercises or those practices. And uh, when I'm struggling or, you know, I'm getting impatient, 
and I've never done this, but I was thinking maybe this would work better if I were to write these scenarios out and write the environment, the practice of writing it, the more I'm thinking about it, it seemed like that would help me. Have you ever had any of your athletes or performers do that? Or is it more, you know, in between the ears? Are you just keeping it all in there and, and going through those scenarios in your head? Yeah, absolutely. So there are practices um, that I engage in with my uh, clients. Going back to the start, actually, it comes from what what it is that you're trying to achieve, right? Are are we trying to be specific? Do we want to execute a skill correctly? Are we trying to motivate ourselves? So we firstly have to determine what it is that we want to achieve from this practice. Right. And then what goes into that is I have the client write down the scenario. For example, let's take... um, basketball so if we're at the buzzer we have a free throw we're on the free throw line there are so many things that the athlete can be experiencing for example you obviously have the physical senses you might have sweaty palms tingling sensations you might have heart racing so you you writing all these down and getting really into the depth of the scenario and really what's going on on top of that you have the crowd noises you have camera flashes so breaking down what's going on when your surroundings what's happening in the body so breaking down an image into small components and visualizing those components so your stance how are you standing is your left foot in front of your your right foot how are you holding the ball so all the kind of uh, technical aspects if you will and then we have the I have the client write down their emotions. So again, if, if this is a, a point that they really need, um, a great scenario to envisage, there could be an array of emotions. You could be absolutely terrified. You could be excited. You could be anxious. You could be feeling nauseous. So we really try to get the client into that frame of mind and for them to write down a scenario that's that's true to them and something that they have to know about themselves, right? Because we can be in that same scenario with the athlete, but we're going to be experiencing completely different things. So two people will be having completely different experiences. So after they've um, written down this scenario, essentially, we kind of go through a process of uh, refinement. From that scenario, we might go back into the imagery practice. So we sit there for however long it takes, I have them visualize this experience that they've written down and then we we reflect on it so how was that how was that practice for you did you feel like you were really in the scenario were you able to take yourself through it without distracting yourself were you really able to generate those emotions perhaps they weren't so okay we go through it and we say well let's take out some things that are are actually kind of irrelevant because we've just added in a bunch of stuff here so let's take out some stuff that's irrelevant so we go through this process or perhaps we might even add some things that we're missing. So they might have written down the scenario, but actually when it comes to, to imagining it or visualizing it, they've kind of imagined this uh, scenario or some components in there that they didn't write down. So we go back, like I said, refine it, take some things out, add some things in. We get to this, this uh, refined script where it's really the fine details of a reflection of a true scenario. So going through and writing these things down is is 100% a technique that I uh, get my clients to engage in, not only because it helps with the refinement process, but because writing it down is always better than just imagining it in your head, right? Yeah, definitely. That's what I'm finding in myself. And again, just the struggles that I have trying to imagine it. It's like, all right, if I could just put this down on paper, it's going to be so much easier for me to navigate through that and to see what it is that's you know, not just hindering me on the ice, but hindering me in my mind yeah. to get to the places that I want to get to. Um, you, you just touched on something that I really wanted to get into, just 
how, you know, every athlete and every performer, they're going to be drastically different from person to person. So the approach I'm sure is very drastically different. And so there's, I'm sure some initial steps to identifying what your approach will be. But what I'm really curious to hear, and I'm not entirely sure if this is a good question, so let me know if it isn't. (laughs) (laughs) Are there any surprising similarities or like common psychological hindrances that you see a lot of these high performers have? Um, Is there like a common denominator a lot of the times? Or is it pretty much always different? Yeah, I would say... Yes, actually, I would probably say if there's anything common amongst high performers and probably any any type of performer, amateur performers, intermediate, it is most often emotional regulation. Being able to control your emotions definitely seems to be a common theme throughout the high performers that I have worked with. And what I mean by that is it might not always be something, something terrible. It might not always be something really bad, whereas someone can't control their anxiety. They can't control their anger. But on the opposite side of that is something that's also quite common is the emotion of winning and the emotion of being on top, not taking yourself too high is also quite challenging because you can feel the euphoria and absolutely please do. I 100% encourage my athletes to to feel that experience and take it all in. But if you stay there too long, you can hinder your next performance or you can be in a mentality that's not quite baseline and it's not quite stable because you're still, you're still riding this high, right? So it's not always something bad, but it's trying to encourage the athletes to find a baseline, find a stability, find like a middle ground. So that is definitely something that's quite common and something that stuck with me uh, from an athlete that I worked with at Birmingham. She was very much into the Stoic philosophy. So she was very much grounded uh, in, in her values and grounded in her emotions. She knew that when she, for example, if she lost or played terribly or performed really badly, she knew how to move on from that and take herself back up to her baseline back to her baseline mood, back to her baseline emotions, back to her baseline mindset. And as well as that, when she was riding a high and when she'd won a really important game or, or smashed a performance, she knew that that could go terribly wrong if she stayed there. So she was very good at bringing herself back down to that baseline, back down to that, that middle ground so that she can always kind of be stable and always be in this mindset that was facilitative to, Uh, an optimal performance each time so she was very good at that and my experience with working with her has very much stayed with me to this day because it was kind of profound to see that in such a young athlete as well very young person very young athlete to see that in someone and to have such knowledge of of how being too low and being too high are equally or can equally be detrimental so yeah, emotional regulation is definitely a common denominator in high performers that I've worked with anyway. Right. And I have to imagine being aware of that common denominator there, that that has really helped you develop your, your, the mental system that you work with uh, and, and how you approached each athlete, each performer, because you know that that's going to be there. And it, this actually comes back to something you said earlier that I wanted to ask you about uh, when you were working with the Coventry City Men's Academy you had said that from scratch, you had developed a mental system. Are you still using that today? I'm sure it's changed over uh, over time, but are you still using a lot of what you developed there from scratch? Um, no, only because what you or what I might introduce to one team or to one club 
might not work for another club or for another team. So at that at that specific team, uh, because there was there was no education, there was no psychology education, there was a, a lack of a knowledge on the topic. So it was very much starting at, at, from the beginning and introducing topics, introducing skills and techniques and introducing a system whereby the athletes uh, social and psychological constraints to performance can be monitored so introducing a monitoring system uh, within a system that they already had so integrating the psychological system into their monitoring system that might never happen again for me I might never work for a team again that needs that you know so going into a different team again for example uh, the Birmingham team it was completely different they whilst they didn't have any psychological support in place they they were very knowledgeable they had the education and they knew about it so I didn't need to go in there and introduce baseline basic topics it was kind of we could start a bit further down the line and we could get into uh, a bit deeper stuff so yeah it, it just depends who it is who you're working with and what they're trying to achieve and what their current state is yeah another thing you had said not too long after that was something about uh, an athlete that you were working with and, and that was dealing with uh, rehabilitating an injury mm-hmm. and i just came across this recently i didn't realize there was a whole different field of psychology when it comes to injuries and in performance psychology and i was wondering if you could speak on you know, because I, I know it's a very difficult time for athletes. I've dealt with a lot of injuries myself, and uh, there's certainly a lot of mental hurdles that you have to go through while uh, you're injured. Are, are there different psychological techniques in this scenario compared to a, a lot of other performance psychology techniques? I wouldn't say uh, different techniques. The techniques used in sports psychology are very much used across the board. It just depends how they're used uh, and in what circumstance. So, for example, one athlete that I was working with who had come off a back injury, I think she broke her back and she'd been out for a year, two years, and she was a, she was very much a star of the team. And coming back from that injury, she went the way of being very self-motivated. She was very intrinsically motivated. So she was putting in the work. She was doing the drills that she had to do. She was engaging in the recovery that the physiotherapist set for her. And she was very much self-aware of where, where it is that she needed to improve and where it is that she was actually okay and could come back to later. And in comparison to uh, someone on the same team who had a, a different injury, but was also out for a significant amount of time, had very much lost confidence, lost motivation, uh, and lost motivation to play at a high level lost confidence in her ability to be able to perform at a high level so a lot of her thoughts would be negative thoughts for example if I was to work with her again we would start by kind of changing her interpretation of events trying to understand why she thinks so negatively about the event which it might sound silly to say because you know they've just had this horrible injury and you know it's going to take a long time to recover but like I said before if we can either go that way of losing confidence and losing motivation and not, not seeing the, the bigger picture. Or we can go the other way of the other female athlete where, yes, she had a horrible injury. Yes, she has to engage in this horrific recovery process. But what's at the end of the day, what's going to help you get back to where you were? And not only just that, but help you go even further. It's going to be the mentality of, you know what, I can do this. I can get through this. I am confident that I'm going to get back to where I was. I am confident that I'm going to have the ability that I had before. And I can go even further. Why not? Who says I can't do that? Until scientists or researchers or physiotherapists, whoever it is, till my doctor tells me that I can no longer play sport, 
there is no reason why you can't at least try to be to play at your optimal performance or your optimal level so coming back to the use of psychological techniques for rehabilitating injury i think a lot of it comes down to self-awareness so knowing what it is that you need to do and understanding yourself and understanding your emotions and and working on those emotions too so it's one thing to understand yeah i I don't feel confident right now um i feel anxious all the time but understanding the next step in that and building on that and starting to work on that so that you can move forward that's what's important that's where you will get two different athletes even if they had the same injury that's where they will differ not in their rehabilitating process from you know, putting the drills in and running laps around the field, it will be in their mentality towards their recovery process. That's where the difference will be. Right. Yeah. I feel like that's been a learned behavior for me just by example. I've dealt with a lot of injuries and and I've dealt with a lot of those psychological hurdles. And I saw my, my mother-in-law at the time she was in her late fifties, she broke her knee, broke her kneecap and she was laughing. She was laughing about it. And she was, she's like, Oh, I'm so klutzy. And me at the time, probably in my late twenties was like, like, Oh my God, I'd be so like psychologically destroyed over that, which I thought was just the normal psychological state to be in, you know, by default, it's like, that's how we all are. Right. Like that's normal. And to see that it really, really helped me. It made a lot of sense to I don't know. It, it was a light bulb that went off. And I think it was something that I learned by example. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and we can bring that back to very simplistic terms as well. Even if we explain it kind of how, how I just did previously is what's really the better outcome. Is it sitting around moping about an injury? Yes, it was terrible. Or is it actually say, accepting that, yeah, it was terrible, but I'm going to get back up and I'm going to do it again. Right. So even if we just split it into those two different mentalities and those two different scenarios, it actually becomes very simple. Um, it just depends on how that person approaches it. And if they do approach it in a negative way, as a sports psychologist, it is my job to kind of change that interpretation and get to the root of why they think like that in the first place because that will come out in other areas if that is like a core value of theirs if they lose a lot of self-worth or if they place their self-worth on their sport for example or on on their ability to play sport that will come out in other experiences and other scenarios so getting to the root of that core value and then building on it so it, it can be very simple some people some athletes can complicate it maybe some people make excuses but if you really want to get to a high level and perform at a high level it can be simple you just have to allow yourself to understand it that way and then put in the work right it it really is a choice yes uh, 100 percent, 100 percent a choice yeah yeah one thing i really wanted to to get from you is just you know, we always hear how coaching and, and teaching others allows you to understand a specific subject matter mm-hmm. to a whole other level. And I'm curious to hear how that has applied to you. Have you learned things as a performance coach or a sports psychologist that you've been able to apply and benefit from in your own life? Yes, for sure. Um, I think watching a lot of people in the field, you kind of just pick up on on their ways of working. And a lot of the time, well, if not all of the time, it's very different to how you work. So myself and a different sports psychologist might be given the task of working with the same athlete, but our approaches might be completely different. So I would actually say this probably began during my academic studies with my uh, one of my tutors. I had a very good working relationship with him. 
and understanding how he approached working with clients that really helped me to understand how I not should work with clients but perhaps what I should consider when working with certain clients and what what's more is I actually learned a lot from the education that I didn't receive and from a lot of things that I didn't see so for example in school or in university we aren't taught actually the applied stuff with a client we aren't taught things like like the business background of sports psychology we aren't taught okay well this person's told you that they suffer severely from pre-competition anxiety this is how you deal with it that we're not really taught that we're just kind of taught the theories and the the research about it and then it's kind of up to us to gather information and make informed judgments so it comes down to um picking at people's brains and picking at the coach's brain and the my, my tutor's brain and understanding why he would approach this client in that way what is it that he's taking into consideration because what i'm learning here about theory uh, theories of motivation or theories of confidence that's not really telling me how i should be working with this person and what i should be looking out for or the judgments that i need to make it's actually my approach will actually be like a an accumulated uh, accumulated ideas of other people's approaches if that makes sense so because i sure. because i've picked up on so many of the things and the way that i approach working with a client it will be an accumulation of that so i think you pick up on so many different things uh small things and big things and even things like um the like going back to the business side of things how how do you work with the client how do you do you like invoice them afterwards do you write a scenario how do you know what to go into for the next session or okay we touched on this in session two do i talk about this in, in session three like you again you aren't taught any of this stuff in education it's just it's a lot of judgment making it's a lot of just going with what you think is right and i think that comes to um something that you mentioned before we started recording was the placebo effect or faking it till you make it kind of thing um it, it comes back to that because it's kind of like well i, I don't sometimes I, I don't really know i might be presented with a I'm not sure if i should be admitting this but i, I might be uh, <laughs> presented with a client who has a, a completely different experience than something that i've ever heard of and it's up to me to get all the information about this client that i can do some research observe this client in in various environments take notes and then really it's about making a judgment. It's about understanding uh, the different interventions that are available, the different psychological skills that might need to be improved. And then just go working with that client and saying, this is what I've seen from you. This is what the, the data about you says, and this is what my research says. Do you agree? Can you tell me more? Um, and then it, just going about implementing a certain intervention or go about developing a certain psychological skill. So those those judgments that i make and will make in the future have come from picking from the people in my life the professional people that i work with so yes at 100 percent. back to your question 100 percent have uh, learned a lot from the people that i work with yeah that was a beautiful answer <laughs> <laughs> very long-winded but we got no, there it was great it was great that's what I, exactly what i was looking for um See, I want to be respectful of your time. I know we're closing in on an hour. There's a couple questions that uh, I wanted to get to. One of them being, if there are any books or doc documentaries that uh, you would recommend to our listeners. 
books or documentaries uh one book i read recently that has probably had the most lasting impact i would say is a book called high performance habits by brendan Burchard. he is a high performance coach um most in the business world but his book high performance habits is really groundbreaking it's applicable so he gives you he, he takes you through scenarios and then he gives you practices to kind of carry out. And I like it because it forces you to do the work. So coming back, it's, it's fine to read the book, but if you don't do the work, that there's, there's no point. And that's coming back to a previous point that we made is it's fine to read books and it's great to listen and, take in and have conversations with people and read the research, but it's actually about what you do with all of that information that matters the most because that, that is what will be the difference. So myself and a friend, we can both read this book, but if my friend doesn't engage in the process of carrying, of you know, engaging in these practices even, but I do, who's more likely, in theory, who's more likely to, to perform at a higher level? It's going to be me, because I've engaged in those practices and I've actually worked on something. So definitely recommend that book. Um, another book is called The Champion's Mind. I can't remember the author but it is on our website that is also a really good book for understanding uh, psychological techniques but without all of the industry jargon so without all of the the theory words or the long words that we don't really understand and we need to google it's got none of that but it touches on things like self-talk attentional focus uh, imagery as well uh, and just general mentality so if, if you want to understand a bit more about psychological skills and techniques but want it put in simple form. That is a very good book for that. Um, podcasts also are, are a very good source. One, one podcast that I um, recently listened to is Finding Mastery by a sports psychologist, Michael Gervais, who works with the Seattle Seahawks. His podcast is really good for uh, all of this, everything sports psychology mentality. That's really good as well. Very cool. Yeah, I'll definitely check that out. I was just watching a, a video with him. Yeah. Yeah, that guy's awesome. Yeah, um, just one last question here: If you could leave our quote-unquote cubicle athlete uh, listeners one piece of advice or wisdom, what would that be? How could we all better ourselves, become better athletes or performers, or just anything that we we strive to be? My advice would be to look at all of your experiences and everything that happens in life with an opportunity to learn so you can experience something horrible you can experience something great there will always be an opportunity to learn something about yourself about the world about relationships about people around you so really if you you would actually be doing yourself a disservice if you didn't take something from every experience because there is an opportunity to understand yourself better and understand better ways of working and better ways of performing in all experiences, day-to-day -day experiences, in one-off profound experiences, there is an opportunity there. And reminds me of something that I recently watched in a, an interview with Kirby Bryant. And he said that when he was coming up, everything that he engaged in, whether it was reading a book, having a conversation or listening to a podcast, whatever it was, everything he did, he had in mind was the goal of becoming a better basketball player. And quote unquote he said the world becomes your library 
and I, that's really stuck with me and I really do stand by that it, it kind of put in in a few words really what I'm trying to do with Beyond Better and, and really what what's at the core of Beyond Better is the world really is your library you just have to see it that way so the advice is there is an opportunity to learn in every scenario don't do yourself a disservice and actually try to become better just by thinking differently really look for the opportunity to learn and apply it to life and try not to make the same mistakes twice so yeah the world is your library and, and you can learn from anything that would be my advice you you just have to see it in that light i love that natasha thank you so much i really appreciate your time this was great and um yeah, I'd love to, if you have time at some point in the future, I'd love to do it again. There were so many other questions I wanted to get to, but I wanted to be respectful of your time. But thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me on. I would absolutely love to do this again. I had a great time. Really enjoyed it. I think I made it. I think I made it. I think I made it because I'm always smiling and you're the reason now. Girl, I can't explain it. It's all in the time and I had to get low, I had to get low, I had to get back I had to report, I had to get facts, cause you were just that, you that Girl, you share your truths with me, and I find them true Amused, you in the booth with me Can't spend time on a nickel and diamond I got me a girl, she don't want no diamonds A daily reminder to holler at God Like, where did you find her? Good looking, my nigga. Everything around me, I took it. Did it with only the niggas I knew. And a few niggas I thought I knew better. Let go, my bitches, I always do better. But you're more top echelon. My next probably be a step backwards. Niggas front with niggas struck with love like a drama makes be the best actors. I'm done with all that tough acting. John Madden with a saw happy. So it happens. My niggas want life's good things, they still dream it. And you deserve them too. I'ma do it just so it happens. I think I made it. I think I made it. Cause I'm always smiling and you're the reason now. Girl, I can't explain it. It's all in the time and I had to get low, I had to get low, I had to get back I had to report, I had to get facts, cause you were just that, you that You share your truths with me, and I find them true Amused, you in the booth with me Yeah. I'm hella faded. I'm hella faded. These niggas been hating. I don't know the reason now. Sometimes I feel jaded. They don't see the real me. They only know code. They only know code. Oh, I had to get back. I had to resort to turning my back. I'm doing just that. True that. I thought he was through with me. But that wasn't true. The proof. You in the coop with me. God shuffled the cards. Dealt me a hand with impossible odds. Put an obstacle course up, look, and I conquer them all. Conquer them all. With minimal effort, I'm fresher than sucking your jaw. Fuck. They spinning my record so heavy, I'm popping the Forbes. Stuck in a rock in a hard place, though. Is it true what they say? The higher you go, the longer the fall. Well, I dropped to the floor, the knock at the door was on cue. Uh, I thought that I saw it all till I saw you. Now I call you when the sun shines and the rain dries up. I'm a pit bull, but for you, I be on chain tied up. In the backyard with a muzzle on, tail wagging like Oregon Trail. Waiting on you to come through just like you do. Well, I think I made it I think I made it Cause I'm always smiling and you're the reason now Girl, I can't explain it It's all in the time and I had to get low I had to get low I had to get back I had to report, I had to get facts Cause you were just that, you that You share your truths with me And I find them true Amused, 
You in the booth with me. La 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 la. This one's for you. La 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 la. This one's for you. now